We're studying the Gospel of John, so I'd encourage you to go ahead and open your Bibles to John chapter 1. We're going to finish up John chapter 1 today, and as we do, um, let me ask you, you know, we're going to start in verse 35, by the way, when we get down there. Uh, this is another one of these passages that we could look at about 16 different ways, and so we don't have time to get into everything about it, but I, I wanted to kind of start off with this question. What would it take for you to follow a stranger, okay? What would it take for you to follow a stranger? We've had those conversations with our kids, right, about stranger danger, and it doesn't matter if this guy says he has a puppy, you don't go off with him, you know, it doesn't matter if they offer you candy, or even if they say, hey, we're your parents, your parents told me to come get you. If it's somebody you don't know, you don't go off with them, but we make an exception usually, don't we, right? There's usually an exception. The only exception for that is if it's a police officer or a firefighter in their uniform or a paramedic in their uniform, if they say, hey, there's an emergency, you need to come with me. We trust those people based off of the uniform that they have. They'll, they're allowed to follow that stranger, but that's about it, right? We, we teach them that they're not supposed to. In fact, some of you may have a password with your kids where um, if, if somebody comes to pick them up from school, they have to give the same password that your parents told them or you don't go with them. I don't know if you guys have ever done anything like that, but you guys familiar with the idea of stranger danger? Um, by the way, uh, if you go back several, I mean, like decades Channel 7 or Channel 10 did an expose on that and figured out that the training is not nearly as effective as you think it is, okay? It's absolutely terrifying to watch. Um, but we try to teach our kids not to go off after a stranger. Now, we're older than that, and so we don't follow strangers. We try not to follow strange people. But how many of you have received a call from the IRS or from your bank or from uh, Amazon or from your car's extended warranty, Right? And they're asking, they need to get this straightened out, and all they need is your bank account and routing number, or all they need is your social security number. And, you know, I don't know if you guys have watched any of the behind-the-scenes videos of how the scammers get away with this, but it's absolutely fascinating to watch the psychological tricks they use to pressure and manipulate people to where all of a sudden they'll usually prey on an older single woman by herself, and they'll take advantage of her sympathies, and they'll do all of this, and before you know it, you figure out, you've given away the farm to this person on the other end of the phone, and they've got access to everything now, right? We would say, we don't want to do that, but if I'm going to give out my information, I'm never going to give out any information like that over the phone, and I'd encourage you not to either, because you just don't know who's on the other end of the line. So what would it take for you to follow a stranger? Well, you'd have to have some kind of verification. You'd have to know something about this person. You'd have to, there'd be something you'd have to see in them that gave you assurance beyond a shadow of a doubt that they really were who they said they were, they really were doing what they said they were doing, and that, that they, this really was legit and above board. Now, as we go through the rest of the, of the first chapter here of John, we're going to find people who seem like they just up and follow Jesus as if they're just walking off with a stranger. But as they do, they're going to use several titles for Jesus that give us an insight into the person they realized that they, they knew they were following. Although some of them had heard about him before, we don't know. Like when we get to Philip, we know nothing about how Philip came to know about Jesus. We just know that Jesus said, hey, come with me, and he did. We see that clearly in some of the other ways that the other uh, disciples are called in the other Gospels when those writers, especially like with Matthew. Matthew's sitting there in the middle of his job. Jesus walks up and says, hey, follow me, and he just picks up and leaves. We, we don't know how all of this happens, but what would it take for you to follow somebody, not just out to the car, not just to give them your bank account number, but follow them with your eternity. 
What's it take for you to follow somebody and trust everything you are and everything you have to them? This morning, I'm going to encourage you to, to answer the question, who am I following? And my hope is that as we go through this, we're going to make such a clear picture of who Jesus is that you'll realize that out of everybody in the world that you could follow, he is the only one who's actually worthy of trusting and following today. So my challenge for you is twofold. If you're here this morning or if you're watching us online and you don't yet have a personal relationship with Jesus, my hope and my prayer is that as we talk about who Jesus is, that you're going to be drawn into a relationship with him. You're going to see that he's worthy of trusting, not off what I say, but what off the Bible teaches us about him, and that you today will surrender to follow him. But now I know as I look out across the room, there's probably a lot of us in here who already have that relationship with Christ. But here's what I've found in my own life, and I imagine you've found it in yours as well. I have a tendency over time to kind of forget about certain aspects of God that I don't like as much, right? Things that are challenging to me, things that that I don't, I have a harder time with. Sometimes I'm tempted to kind of put God in a box or God in a corner or kind of reduce him to less than he is. And as we see some of the things that the Bible teaches us about who God is, there's some of it that's very challenging to us in our modern context. So my challenge to you is if you follow Jesus, make sure that you're really following the Jesus of the Bible and not the Jesus of your own imagination or that the TV preacher said or that that History Channel documentary presented or whatever it may be. Follow the Jesus that's explained here in the Bible. Now, we're going to do this by looking at kind of lumping some of the titles that are used of Jesus in three different categories. We're going to do it a little bit different as we're reading through the text today because the, the text, uh, we're kind of pulling stuff out of the text that's, that's a little bit uh, not as much just following through the story. Now, by the way, this is the last part of the introduction to John. Really, starting next week, we start getting into his miracles, and we start getting into his teachings and things. So where we've been talking the last few weeks about the nature of Jesus, we're going to start talking more in the the weeks to come about what he did and what he taught. So as we're diving in here, let's read, uh, starting with verse 35. The next day, John, and remember, this is John the Baptist, was standing with two of his disciples, When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, look, the Lamb of God. Now, remember, he said that the day before. We already looked at that last week. We saw about how beautiful that is and just what an incredible statement he makes. If you don't understand what that statement is, go back and listen to last week's sermon. It should be on the the website because it's it's a really powerful statement. Verse 37, the two disciples heard him say this and followed Jesus. When Jesus turned and noticed them following him, he asked them, what are you looking for? Great question. We'll come back to you in a minute. They said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and you'll see, he replied. So they went and saw where he was staying and stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of the two who heard John and followed him. He first found his own brother Simon and told him, We've found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. And he brought Simon to Jesus. When Jesus saw him, he said, You are Simon, son of John. You'll be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. Now, we're going to make some observations about the the activities, about what's going on through here, but I want you to first focus with me on the title that they use of Jesus here in this very first section, and that is they call him rabbi. They call Jesus rabbi. Now, the, the term rabbi, as John says, also means teacher. I thought about going ahead and translating it and you know, calling it teacher instead, but two reasons why I didn't. Number one, we're going to see that the, the term rabbi meant things to them that teacher doesn't mean to us. The other reason is 
because it starts with R, and that makes all my points alliterate, and that makes me happy, okay? So that's why we went with rabbi. It's in the text, and it also conveys a different perspective. So, so as we're looking at this, they, they come to Jesus, and they call him rabbi. Now, before they do, Jesus asks them a very poignant question. What are you looking for? What are you searching for? This is actually the same word that when, in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus talks about asking, seeking, and knocking. It's that same term. What are you seeking? Now, it could have just been a simple question of, of you know, what, what you need. But I would imagine because of what we see in John chapter 4 when Jesus is talking with the woman at the well, I would imagine that there's multiple layers to this question. So I'm going to pose it to you as well. What are you seeking? What's your goal in life? What do you want to get out of life? What do you want to accomplish? What do you want out of following Jesus? Is it because, like I said, you you want maybe some hope and some peace and stuff every once in a while, but you still want to live your life over here and do your thing and and just kind of, but but I want to have Jesus kind of in my corner to back me up so that if if stuff gets rocky, I can go look at him and and that'll be good. Or are are you willing to look at Jesus as your rabbi? See, we're going to talk about that in a second, but as we're going through this, all of us are going for something. At the core of all of of our lives, whether we're desiring success, whether we're desiring some kind of relationship, some kind of significance, some kind of comfort, some kind of... At the core of all of this is this desire that we all have, I guess probably two, really, the desire to matter to someone and the desire to escape death. In case you don't think that that the desire to escape death runs everything we do, Just look at how much of our life and how much of our money is spent on things that are anti-aging products or are spent on, you know, the fact that now we have completely outsourced death. You know, it used to be 100 years ago that if somebody in your family died, you, you as the family were the ones who actually embalmed the body. The body would stay in your living room until you went out and dug the grave and that you would do all of that yourself. But now we've kind of outsourced that. Not only do you not usually die in your home, you now die at the hospital, so we don't even see you die. Then we do it all at the funeral home, so we don't have to have it in our house. We let the professionals handle that. And then we we bury you off in the cemetery, kind of off on the far side of town, so we don't really have to think about it anymore. I mean, I imagine that there's probably some of you in this room that when you drive past Roselawn or when you drive past Sunset Cemetery, you look left. You just, you, you don't know why, But there's something about looking at that cemetery that makes you uncomfortable. All of us are doing that. And by the way, as you get older, it gets worse, I'm finding. You either get more comfortable with it or you get less comfortable with something. Some of you are like, ah, I still got like 60, 80, 90 years ahead of me. You may, or you may not, who knows. But the reality is we all have this desire to matter and to escape death. Can I go ahead and tell you that the only lasting source of significance the only lasting source of hope over death, the only lasting source of the peace that you're looking for, the comfort, the status, the significance, is found in following this rabbi named Jesus. So no matter what your desire is, no matter where you're at, this is the only thing that happens. Now, as ultimately, you know, Andrew's asking this question, and he's asking the one who has the answers that we all are desperately seeking. Now, as he's doing this, they came to the right person, and they acknowledged that Jesus was a rabbi or a teacher. We don't really have a good concept for this in our world. 
But how many of you have ever known somebody who absolutely got obsessed about like a self-help or a business author? Think like a Tony Robbins or a, a, a John Maxwell type or something like that, where they read everything that this guy's ever written. They read every blog that he ever posts. They pay the money to go to the conference. They start talking like him. They start dressing like him. Have you guys ever known anybody that's done like that? Some of you guys got a few nods. That's the kind of the closest we have to the idea of a rabbi. A rabbi was not just somebody you went to for spiritual advice. They weren't just kind of like your pastor or something. A rabbi was a person who you committed your life to following and patterning your life after. Yes, he was a teacher, but it was more than just like the guy that taught you, you know, earth science. Like Mr. Morris taught me earth science back in ninth grade, right? Some of you guys knew Mr. Morris at the high school um, with his glass eye that was the talk of the town. Yeah, see, Christiansburg alum, no, all right? Mr. Morris taught me ninth grade earth science. I don't remember any of it. Um, I just know that it had to do with rocks. That's about all I've got. When we say Jesus is our rabbi or Jesus is our teacher, we're not talking about, hey, I'm going to learn the spiritual stuff from Jesus. What we're talking about is coming and patterning our life after him going with him and sitting with him. That's what we see, right? Because their question is, Rabbi, where are you staying? 39, come and you'll see, he replied. So they went where he was and went and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day. It was about four in the afternoon. So as they're staying with Jesus that afternoon, they're making that commitment, I want to learn from you. I want to learn everything I can from you. I want to walk with you. I want to eat with you. I want to sit with you. I want to be there with you every moment of every day as much as possible. So my question to you as you're thinking about following Jesus is, are you following him as your actual rabbi, or is he just kind of your spiritual guru who's just kind of, I'll, I'll consult him when you know, things get rocky, and I'll, I'll pray when stuff's not working out real, real well? You know, how did Jesus answer this question that, like I said, speaks to our deepest longing? He said, come, and you'll see. He called them to himself and said, if you'll follow me, if you'll go with me, if you'll walk with me, you'll see who I am. You'll see what you're looking for. You'll find the very thing that your heart is searching for. It reminds me of what David said in Psalm chapter 34, verse 8, where he said, taste and see that the Lord is good. How happy is the person who takes refuge in him. I had the privilege a few years back to go to Thailand on a mission trip. Now, I don't know about you guys, I, I was not a very adventurous eater before I went to Thailand. I, I just have always been very, like, you know, meat and potatoes, but only if you fix the meat and potatoes correctly, right? I mean, just very selective eater, discerning palate. I get to Thailand, and we were sitting there one night, and they said, hey, uh, why don't you guys go over? There, there's some street carts that we know the people that are working at these. Why don't you go buy you something to eat and, and come back? I walk up, and sitting there roasting on these little kebabs is a a kebab of chicken heart, okay? I had never eaten chicken heart before. I had no desire to eat chicken heart. But I thought, you know what? Why not? You know what I actually found out? Chicken heart is really good, okay? You wouldn't expect it, but it's actually really tender, like, it's, it's incredibly good. And this had a really great flavor. I would never in a million years have thought that chicken heart roasted on a charcoal fire in the street in Pattaya, Thailand, would actually be good. But it was delicious. 
Some of you, that's where you're at with Jesus. You're like, I've heard about Christians and the do's and the don'ts, and, and I've seen some people who are really hypocritical. I don't want any part of that. Guys, can I, can I tell you, taste and see that the Lord is good. Try it. Come to him and say, you know what? I know that I don't understand everything and, and it's going to be hard, but I need to follow this rabbi. He said in, there in that psalm, he said, how happy is the person who takes refuge in him. That doesn't mean, by the way, that life's always going to be easy and you're going to be you just have this smile plastered on your face every moment of the day. But there is joy and there is peace and there is hope that's found in following Christ that you can't find anywhere. So try it. Taste and see that the Lord is good. It also reminded me of something Jesus said to his disciples there as he calls out in the festival in Matthew chapter 11, 28 and 29, where he says, Come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke and learn from me because I'm lowly and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. All right, you want a moment of, of blatant honesty with you guys? Yesterday morning was not a good morning in my head. We had a, a lovely, quiet day with nothing scheduled. That's a problem for me because my mind loves to just run all kinds of places unless I give it something to do. So I was trying to sleep in, and I'm laying there, and then I'm getting up that morning, and I'm trying to keep my thoughts in line. But you know what I kept doing? I kept running over the list of about 10 stupid things that come to mind. I've done way more than 10, but 10 stupid things over the last eh, 20 years or so that I have done, whether they were sinful things or just dumb things like conversations where you said something stupid and you felt like an idiot for like ever. My brain was stuck on running through those things over and over and over and over again, okay? That's, that's where I was yesterday morning. I told Samantha, it's not a good place to be in my head right now. I don't know. You guys ever had that kind of moment? Okay. All right. I, you know, some people can do something and move on and never remember about it. I, like, I could give you lists of, of things that I said and did that were stupid. I was training for a half marathon about this time 10 years ago. I ran past somebody on the Huckleberry Trail. They were riding a bicycle going the opposite direction, and they said, Sean Couch! And it looked like, I think I may have known them from college. I'm not really sure. I hadn't seen them in years. I don't remember what the guy's name was. I said, hey, and kept running. To this day, that still bothers me. That's one of the thoughts that went through my head. Why didn't you stop and talk to that guy? It may have been one of the guys that was on your hall at Liberty that you had, you had tried to share Jesus with, and, and now you just snubbed him and took off running, and you haven't seen him for years. How dare you, you idiot? That's what was going through my head yesterday morning, okay? That's one of the list. Like I said, some of them were sinful, some of them were just stupid. But you know what I, I needed to do? I finally sat down with my Bible, and I, I read my, my Bible reading plan that I've got, and as I sat down and I was reading through my Bible reading plan, there was nothing that directly addressed the fact that I'm a moron and you know, did these things 10 years ago. But just sitting down and getting in God's Word, I was able to find rest for my soul. Those thoughts quieted down. Now, I'll be thinking about it all day because I brought it back up this morning. But we come to Him. We learn from Him. And we find rest for our soul. This is the rabbi we're following. Jesus is not just some TED speaker trying to give you a motivational talk that makes you feel good or whatever. This, as we've said, is the God of the universe from whom we pattern everything about our lives with. The commitment that you see Andrew and Simon Peter making as soon as they follow Jesus, they're not going off with a stranger. They're going off with their rabbi. 
Is Jesus your rabbi? Is he your teacher? How much of your life are you letting Jesus speak into? Oh, oh sure, I'll listen to what he says about this. I, we'll deal with that later. See, that's not how this works. Because not only is our, he our rabbi, the second thing we see out of this passage is he's also our ruler. He's our ruler. Now, not like 12-inch, you know, draw a straight line ruler. He is the one who rules and reigns over all of creation. Now, we talked about that as we looked at, at Colossians 1 when we were looking at John 1 in the prologue about the fact that he's the one who created all things and he sustains all things. But, but here's what I want you to think about as you look at this. He, as his first disciples are acknowledging, he's ruling over everything, which also means he's ruling over you. Do you see the difference there? It's easy for me to say Jesus is in charge of the world. It's a whole different thing for me to say Jesus is in charge of me. And he is, whether you acknowledge it or not. By the way, I would choose to acknowledge. That's a much better way to do it. So as we look here, it's interesting to notice that the first thing that Andrew does after following Jesus is he goes and tells his brother. We actually don't know a whole lot about Andrew outside of the fact that like every time we see him show up in the Gospels, he's bringing somebody to Jesus. Isn't that a cool way to be known? Like if, if nobody remembered anything about you, all they remembered was you're the guy that brought people to Jesus or you're the, the lady that brought people to Jesus. How cool would that be? And that's what Andrew does. The very first thing, he encounters Jesus. John the Baptist has said, hey, look, he's the guy. So he goes off with Jesus. He says, no, Jesus really is the Messiah. And he goes and finds his brother. If, by the way, you've been saved, you need to be telling everybody about him. We see that, that he recognized that Jesus is the Messiah. Again, look in verse 41. He first found his own brother, Simon, and told him, we have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ, and he brought Simon to Jesus. Some of you guys didn't know, Christ is not Jesus' last name, okay? Christ is a title for Jesus that is the, the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah, both of which mean anointed, okay? So Jesus is his name, and Christ, or Messiah, is a title that's given to him, just like Son of God, Son of Man, like we'll talk about in just a minute. And he is the King of Israel, okay? He is the, the Messiah. Now, this was someone that, that God had promised back in the Old Testament that he would send someone who would be this special one who was the Lord's anointed. They were looking for somebody to come that would be the Lord's anointed in a unique way. Warren Wearsby says it this way, In the Old Testament, prophets, priests, and kings were anointed and thereby set apart for special service. Kings were especially called God's anointed. So when the Jews spoke about their Messiah, they were thinking of the king that would come and deliver them and establish the kingdom. So what they're finding is they're, they're seeing Jesus start to teach. And they, they've, you know, John said that he saw the Spirit of God descend on him a dove. He's been anointed by the Spirit of God in this unique way. His baptism's taking place. This has got to be the guy. This is the Messiah. Now, they didn't fully understand what that meant, which is why it's so significant when later on Peter actually says, you're the Messiah, that they had an idea. They thought he was coming as the king to establish his earthly kingdom. In fact, that's what we're going to see in the second part of this account. Pick back up with me in verse 43. So we've had Andrew and we've had Simon Peter now are following Jesus. Pick up in verse 43. Next day, Jesus decided to leave for Galilee. He found Philip and told him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, the hometown of Andrew and Peter. So that may be where he heard about Jesus, by the way, was from his friends. Philip found Nathanael and told him, we have found the one Moses wrote about in the law, and so did the prophets. Jesus, the son of Joseph from Nazareth. <laughs> Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Nathanael asked him. 
Come and see, Philip answered. Then Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said, Here truly is an Israelite in whom there is no deceit. How do you know me? Nathanael asked. Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you, Jesus answered. Rabbi, Nathanael replied, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Now, what's going on there? Okay, there's some debate among scholars about exactly what happened. But here's the deal. Philip goes to Nathanael and says, hey, we found them. This is the guy that, that Moses said would be a prophet like, that would be raised up like me, Deuteronomy chapter 18. And so then this is the guy. You need to come follow him. Nathanael's like, mm, yeah, you sure about that? Because nothing good comes out of Nazareth, right? I mean, that's the backwoods side of nowhere, right? Think about whatever town you think of around here that is backwards and all that kind of stuff. That's Nazareth. That's where Jesus was from, right? So can anything good come out of Nazareth? So well, come on, see. As he's coming, Jesus says, here's an Israelite in whom there is no guile, for those of you who grew up with the King James translation, right? Uh, there, there's nothing wrong about this guy. He, is, he is in, has integrity. And Nathaniel's like, bro, you don't even know me. He says, actually, yeah, I do know you. Because before he came to you, you were sitting under the fig tree. Now, some have tried to say that's a, the, where you kind of like having his quiet time. It's a place where you go to meditate or something like that. We don't know for sure that that's the case. It may have been. But the reality is he was sitting under a fig tree, and there's no way Jesus could have known that other than the fact that he's God in the flesh. So all of a sudden, he sees he knew where I was. He saw me. He knew what was going on with me. It, This guy must be the son of God. He must be the king of Israel. So here we have more titles that point to him being the ruler. The idea of son of God and the idea of son of man, these are all Old Testament pictures that pointed to the fact that Jesus or whoever it was going to be, this Messiah would come and he would set up his earthly kingdom. Now, for them, they thought it was going to be this incredible thing where he was going to drive away the Romans and all of a sudden Israel was going to be the empire that drove the world with the Messiah as their king. He was going to be the perfect leader that the world had never seen. And one day he is coming to do that, by the way. He is going to come back and he's going to fully establish his kingdom and he's going to rule and reign over all of the earth when he does, and it's going to be awesome, and you want to be there, and you want to be a part of it. But that wasn't this first coming. However, at the same time, Jesus is still ruling and reigning over all of creation. He is in charge. Don't just think about it in terms of him controlling the natural order. Remember that means that he's also in charge of every single person, every single being in heaven and on earth, and that includes you, whether you acknowledge it or not. Now, here's where it gets interesting for us because we love to think about the lovey side of Jesus, the gracious side of Jesus. Sometimes we struggle with the imagery of him as our king. See, we've only seen bad leaders. No matter, you know, some of you may sit there and say, oh, we need another president like Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan wasn't perfect, guys. Whoever you're, we need another president like this guy. Whoever that was was flawed. The greatest leaders you've always known have had some kind of thing. You know, they always talk about never meet your heroes, right? Because you'll see something about them that actually makes them human and knocks them down a notch. Every single world leader has been that way. So then when we read these descriptions of Jesus as king, it can be really hard for us to believe it. But here's what it says in Revelation chapter 19. Then I saw heaven open and there was a white horse. Its rider is called faithful and true. And with justice, he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a fiery flame. Many crowns were on his head. He had a name written on him that no one knows except himself. He wore a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. 
The armies that were in heaven followed him on white horses, wearing pure linen. A sharp sword came from his mouth so that he might strike the nations with it. He will rule them with a rod of iron. He will trample the winepress of the fierce anger of God the Almighty. And he has a name written on his robe and on his thigh, King of kings and Lord of lords. In 21st century America, we struggle with this. That sounds really mean, doesn't it? That sounds really cruel, really unfair that that there would be somebody who would come and judge. Hey, listen to how he's described in Psalm 110. The Lord is at your right hand. He will crush kings on the day of his anger. He will judge the nations, heaping up corpses. He will crush leaders over the entire world. How does that strike you when you hear it? I like the baby Jesus. It's pink and squishy. He's not just the pink, squishy baby Jesus. He is the king of kings. By the way, we, we use that so often as a title. Do you, you know what that means? It means if you put all of the kings of the world, all the presidents, all of the UN, and you put them all together, Jesus is the king over all of them. If you put all the lords, all the leaders of the world into one big room, Jesus is the leader over all of that. He is the king of all of the kings. He is the Lord over all of the lords. So my question to you today is, are you following that Jesus? Or are you like, well, that just sounds really bad. Now, listen, I don't want to be dismissive here. Some of you have been in situations where you have seen power abused. The statement that we often say is absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? Like I said, every world leader you've ever been around is corrupt. Maybe you've had a boss who was out to get you. Maybe you've had a spouse who used their biblical authority inappropriately and used that as a tool and a weapon against you. Maybe you've been a part of some kind of structure where you feel like the the powers that be are oppressing you. And and so for you to follow this powerful God just doesn't fit. I I can't bring myself to do that because my dad was such a jerk or or because the, the systems of this world are so corrupt. I just, I can't follow somebody like that. In case you struggle with it, I, I want to know, first off, I'm, I'm sympathetic to that. You may feel that as we look at this, that you just couldn't follow somebody who's described as angry because your, your dad just could not handle his anger. Let me give you one more attribute of, of Christ that we see in this passage that I hope will show you how good he is. He is the rabbi, absolutely. He is the ruler over all of creation and all of, over all of us. But the third thing we see is that he is also the reconciler the reconciler. Look there, start back in verse 50. I love Jesus' response to Nathanael because Nathanael's like awestruck that Jesus saw him under the fig tree. Jesus responded to him, do you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree? Like, you you always catch a little bit of sarcasm, like, really, that's all it took? Man, you're going to see greater things than that. Then he said, truly, I tell you, you'll see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now, that's a really weird passage if you don't know the context. So let's explain it. I mean, that just sounds really strange. Jesus is using imagery from a really cool story in the Old Testament. When the Bible opens, 
we have the creation of man, and then we see that we chose to rebel, and then that brought judgment on the world. And then before long, we get to this point where God specially selects this man named Abraham to be the one that that would carry the promise that he was going to redeem the world. Through Abraham's family, somebody's going to be redeemed. We we see that then through his son, Isaac, that that God's going to use Isaac's family as the nation that's going to redeem the world. Then that starts to pass into Isaac's own children, to Jacob. In fact, this is where we pick up. Jacob is actually kind of running away from home. He's being sent out to be able to go find a wife from outside of the nation where all the the pagans are that he's living among. He's trying to go find a wife from his own people, somebody that's not going to cause him to not follow God. So as he's going away, he's also kind of running away from his brother because Jacob's a jerk and he uh, intentionally tricked his brother and deceived him. So his brother's pretty much ready to kill him as soon as his dad dad dies. So Jacob's getting out of town. On his way out, God gives him a unique vision. This is in Genesis chapter 28, verses 12 and 13. Talking about Jacob, it says, And Jacob dreamed a stairway was set on the ground with its top reaching the sky, and God's angels were going up and down on it. The Lord was standing there beside him saying, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham, and the God of Isaac. I'll give you and your offspring the land on which you're lying. So as he's getting ready to leave the land that God promised, what God's doing is giving him a a symbol and a reminder of the fact that he's going to be with him wherever he goes. That's what he's doing with Jacob. But in that, there's this picture of Jacob's ladder or stairway to heaven, depending on your generation. Um, As he sees, he sees angels going up and down on this stairway or on this ladder. So what's Jesus saying back in John chapter 1? John 1, 51, he says, Truly I tell you, you will see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. He's saying, I'm that ladder. I'm that stairway. We've talked about this some as we've looked at the prologue, right? We saw that Jesus became flesh, that God brought heaven to us, and that through his sacrifice, we can attain heaven. Can can you believe that? So what he's saying is, I came not only as the rabbi to teach you how to live, to model for you how following me impacts every aspect of your life. I came not only to rule and uh, rule over all of creation. I came to reconcile heaven and earth. Isn't that incredible to think about? I've said this before, guys. Every other world religion, even atheism, every other world religion is the idea of trying to appease some other god. Now, in atheism, it's not actually a god. It's just trying to you know, make the universe happy or trying to make as much as you can out of life before you die. Whatever it is, you make yourself god in that situation. Every religion is about you doing enough good stuff to keep God happy. We've used before the, the illustration that you guys are familiar with in the cartoon. You have the angel and the demon on the shoulders, right? And one's telling you to do one. You know where that comes from? That actually comes out of Islam. In Islam, they believe that there are two angels sitting on your shoulder. One's writing down all the good things you do. One's writing down all the bad things you do. And at the end of your life, those two scrolls are going to be weighed. And whichever one weighs more is going to determine your fate. Every single religion is about trying to make sure your good outweighs your bad, that, that God's happy with you except for Christianity. Yes, he is the righteous judge of the world who rightly will come back and slaughter the nations who refuse to follow him. But before he does, he's giving you the chance to turn to him. 
See, the Bible says that our sin has separated us from God. That there's a barrier between us and him. It says that we're spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins, and we can't fix that on our own. No amount of good stuff makes you not dead anymore. But because God loved you so much, he would send Jesus to come and die in your place. When Jesus was hanging on the cross like we've sung about, He was taking my sin upon himself. All the things that I've ever done wrong and all the things I'll ever do wrong, Jesus was taking all of that upon himself on the cross and taking my wrath and taking my death and dying in my place. But what's so amazing is he didn't stay dead, right? That's what we were singing about, that on the third day, his buried body began to breathe, that he overcame death showing that death has no hold on him. That means he took every ounce of punishment for my sin and he paid every single bit of it down to the very last drop and was raised to prove that he's victorious. So now I can come to God, not because of what I've done, but because of what Jesus has done for me. Because he came down from heaven and took my sin upon himself and gives me access to the very throne room of God. Now to Nathaniel, he gives just a hint of that. These guys didn't fully understand it, but Paul did by the time he was writing to Timothy. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, he said, There is one God and one mediator between God and mankind, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, a testimony of the proper time. Jesus gave himself as the ransom for all of the world. So my question today is, are you willing to be reconciled through what Christ has done. Guys, if I die of a heart attack in the pulpit, which is highly likely when I get into little spats like I just did, I won't go to heaven because I was preaching right when I died. I'll go to heaven because Jesus died in my place. Not because I was a pastor, not because when I was nine, I started following Jesus. It's because I, I was saved by his grace. Because there was a moment when he drew me to himself and, and I committed to following him as my rabbi, my ruler, my reconciler based off what he has done, not off what I've done. He saved me by his mercy and his goodness and his grace. And if you're here today and you've never followed Jesus, you can be saved too. Not because you're going to do enough good stuff to earn it, but because he already earned it for you. And he extends it to you as this free offer of his grace and his goodness. Now, to receive the gift, you simply turn from everything you know to be wrong and and turn to committing to him as your rabbi, your ruler, your reconciler, putting all your faith and trust in him. This is why, by the way, I can stand up here and tell you that it's okay that Jesus has all of the power. Because, yes, absolute power does corrupt absolutely unless it's in the hands of the incorruptible God that are marked with the nails where he hung on the cross for me. I can trust that God with everything. I can trust him to be in charge because if he would die in my place, what won't he do for me? I can trust that he's going to make all of this make sense one day. I can trust that that somehow his plan and his purpose is going to be accomplished. I can trust that because he overcame death. So it's not like following any other leader. He is the rabbi, the one we pattern our lives after, the one we learn from, the one who gives us rest as we study and learn from him. 
He is our ruler. He's in charge, guys. He calls the shots in your life and in the world around us. And he is the reconciler who reunited heaven and earth. And by the way, one day he's coming back to finish the job. Man, I look forward to that time. One day he is going to come back and be the king that they expected him to be. But until he does, we have the privilege of serving him now. So who are you following? For Andrew and Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, they saw enough of Jesus to say, he's worth me following with everything I have. Are you willing to do the same? Bow your heads with me, close your eyes. My question for you this morning is just that. Are you following the real Christ of the Bible? Personally, individually. Has there been that time where you've said, God, I can't do this on my own. I know I have sinned, which is what the Bible says is when we do things wrong, that's sin. I've sinned and I've fallen short of what you've called me to be and to do. And I know that Jesus died for my sins. I know he was raised from the dead and I'm committing everything I have to following you. You say, Sean, that was really quick. That's not like some kind of magic incantation where you just say those words. Has there been that time where you've expressed that kind of thing to God though? Who are you following? If you've never made that decision, I'm gonna be down front in just a minute. I'd love for you to be able to come down here and talk with me about what it is to follow Jesus. If, however, you know you've made that decision, my question for you is, do you still realize that Jesus is the rabbi who's teaching you everything about how to live? Is there an area of your life that you're trying to hide and squirrel away and not letting him be in charge of? even though he is the king of Israel, the son of God, the son of man? Is there a part of you that's still trying to earn God's favor even though it's already been given to you in Christ through his reconciliation of you? What do you need to do today in response? What I'm gonna do is I'm gonna just go ahead and pray for us. I'm gonna let you stay seated where you are. After I pray, if you wanna talk with me about what it means to follow Jesus, you can come down and talk with me or if you need to, Make these steps an altar to pray or whatever you need to do. You feel the freedom to do that. We'll take just a minute together. Father, we're grateful for the day and we are grateful for your word. I'm grateful that as I look around this room, I see men and women, young and old, teenagers, students who are following you with everything that they have. We thank you that you are our rabbi. And we ask that you would help us to follow you fully, to pattern our lives after you. We thank you that you are the God who rules and reigns over everything. So we surrender afresh to you ruling and reigning over our lives. And Father, we thank you that you're the one who sent Jesus to reconcile heaven and earth who accepted his sacrifice in place of my sin, who gave him as a ransom for me. Help us to live worthy of that. And in these moments, help us to make whatever commitment, whatever change, whatever adjustment to follow you.